Happy Thursday, everybody, and welcome to the Week 6 edition of the Stat Pack. I'm your host, Adam Dobrovolsky, and over the next half hour or so, we're going to take a look at a six-pack of items featuring, well, the cold, hard football facts, quality stats, and so much more. We have plenty to talk about, including the Arizona Cardinals might be the worst team in the NFC West. The Green Bay Packers are officially one-dimensional and in big trouble. And Andy Reid earning more blame than Michael Vick for the Philadelphia Eagles' struggles. We'll also take a look at some of the six packs of best players of Week 5, best teams in the NFL right now, and best matchups for Week 6. But let's get things started with the six-pack of stories some of the biggest stories and maybe the hot-button issues or just overall bold statements to make from Week 5. And we'll start things off with the first matchup from Week 5, and that was the Arizona Cardinals falling to the St. Louis Rams 17-3 on Thursday night football in Missouri. And, well, what I saw from that game was an Arizona team that didn't look like a 4-0 team. And actually, in fact, I think look like the worst team in the NFC West. Now, let's get things straight here. It's a great division right now, the NFC West. Only three losses outside of the division. You have two 4-1 and one teams, Arizona and San Francisco, two 3-2 and two teams, Seattle and St. Louis, and three of those six losses were from intra-divisional battles. You look at where the teams rank in the quality standings power rankings and you look at the San Francisco 49ers they're ranked third you look at Arizona they're ranked tied for 10th St. Louis is 12th Seattle is 15th but I do think the Cardinals may finish last in the division when it's all said and done in 2012 why well the offensive hog issues the Cardinals allowed nine sacks against the Rams last Thursday they now ranked dead last in offensive hog index and you look at it because they rank dead last in yards per rushing attempt they rank dead last in negative pass play percentage and they rank 26th in third down percentage they're simply not getting the job done and it really seems like the last two weeks what the Dolphins and Rams did was just attack Kevin Cobb who really is not quick enough to pick up the blitzes and get rid of the ball and compensate for a lacking offensive line. You look back to the days of Kurt Warner where he did such a great job of getting rid of the ball. The Cardinals were constantly pressured in 2009 and 2010 but had one of the best passing offenses because that offense was a lot based on rhythm and timing based on Kurt Warner being such a great quarterback in terms of getting rid of that ball quickly. Uh, Cobb at this point doesn't have the quick release, doesn't have the recognition and the quick thinking of a top flight quarterback to get that job done. So teams right now are attacking the Cardinals when they pass. It doesn't really help out Arizona's point when they can't run the football. Whether it was Ryan Williams over the last two games trying to get the job done, he had absolutely no space to run against either the Dolphins or the Rams. Any fantasy owners who try to pick him up and help out the team were greatly disappointed because he couldn't even muster 100 yards in the two games combined. It's been... Really a myriad of issues right now for the Cardinals in terms of uh, running the football, 
trying to pass the football without getting pass rushed. Uh, right now, the offensive hogs, they're just really costing this team. And even with Kevin Cobb, at best, they're going to be a middle-of-the-pack team when it comes to passing efficiency. So I think that really holds them back. And you have to wonder, even though that defense is great, under Ray Horton, a former Dallas Cowboys defensive back on that on Super Bowl teams, so he knows what to do to get that team ready in terms of the mentality to be a championship defense. You just wonder how long the defense is going to hold because usually the offense is more consistent than the defense. And you just have to wonder because Arizona, they still have a game left against the Seahawks in Seattle, a team that has the sixth best defensive hogs. They still have a game against the Rams who are now seventh best in defensive hogs. And of course, there's two games against the San Francisco 49ers left. They're 11th in defensive hog index. And finally, there's a week 16 matchup against the Chicago Bears and the Bears right now tops in the league in defensive hog index. That right there is five games of the 11 they have left. And those are all just terrible matchups. It's not even really considering what may happen against, uh, say, the Jets uh, or, say, the Bills on Sunday. The Bills are struggling immensely right now. But if Arizona can't take advantage of those teams and they, they hang around, you don't know in those other six games if, if they split it and they say go one and four in these other five games with the tough matchups, you do the quick math, that's an eight and eight team. And at this point, the way the NFC West is looking, eight and eight will probably be dead last in a division. Second, on this six pack of bold statements and storylines from week five is Green Bay. And the fact that they're one dimensional nature predictable from last year is biting them back in a really in my opinion a predictable manner this should not be a surprise i'll say this in a bold statement it's no surprise the green bay packers are two and three and they are in serious trouble think about this and an interesting fact since the associated press began awarding mvps in 1957 the defending MVPs lost to a rookie quarterback on seven occasions. And two of those seven occasions, Aaron Rodgers in 2012. He has already lost to, well, Russell Wilson and Andrew Luck. There's also Mark Sanchez over Peyton Manning in 2009 when the Colts pretty much gave the game away at 14-0. They were resting their players in 1998. There was Charlie Brett, uh, Batch over Brett Favre. 88, you have Chris Chandler over John Elway. 76, you have Scott Bull over Frank Tarkenton. And finally, in 67, Kent Nix over Bart Starr. It doesn't happen all that often and you look at it, two of the seven times this has happened, it's already been this year, and the first five games, that's in itself a terrible sign for the Green Bay Packers. But you just look at it last year. Could you really expect the Packers to build off a season where they had an offensive passer rating of 122.58, an NFL record? Well, if you look at the, the mathematics of it all, the regression to the mean, of the 24 teams 
from 1978 to 2010. We're looking at the live ball era minus last year because you don't have the year plus to look at. But if you go from 1978 to 2010, there were 24 teams with an offensive passer rating of 100 or better. All 24 teams decline in offensive passer rating the following season. So more or less, the Packers, who at this point have a 99.32 offensive passer rating, they're having the expected regression. The problem is the running game hasn't gotten any better. Cedric Benson, okay, in the running game, was they've been doing a decent job. They're ranked 10th in rushing yards per attempt, but they haven't been a threat. Teams still know the Green Bay Packers are going to pass, and it's showing this year where the Packers are 28th in negative pass play percentage, which leads them from being 11th in the offensive hog index last year to 17th this season. Right now, the the Packers, you know what you're getting from them. It's going to be Aaron Rodgers passing, and teams, what happened in the NFL, you get a year. You basically get a year to take the league by storm the next year, they're going to have you figured out. They're going to be able to adjust and really find a way to slow you down if you go with the same type of offense. Think about it with the Wildcat in 2008. 2009, 2010, really not much even close to really getting to the success of 2008. The Dolphins themselves never really rebound from the 11-5 and season. And, and by the time now, the Wildcat is effectively uh, maybe a blip on the radar. You look at the Denver Broncos last year, the triple option with Tim Tebow, John Elway pretty much had that figured out, decided to get rid of Tebow and go with Peyton Manning, a more conventional offense. And then Tim Tebow with the Jets this year. Well, we're going to talk about the Jets and Tim Tebow and how that actually cost the Jets a Monday night football game. So let's just lead it into that. The Jets against the Houston Texans. We, are, we, we mentioned the Packers losing. They're now 2-3 after blowing a 21-3 lead against the Colts. And Indianapolis gets himself a 30-27 victory in great fashion. And we'll talk about the implications of that game later. But here the Jets had a chance on Monday Night Football to take down the Houston Texans. They lost 23-17 because the confusion from this gimmick offense with Tim Tebow on the field and the Wildcat of Tony Sperano, who was the former head coach of the Miami Dolphins. This confusion led to two timeouts in the fourth quarter with the Jets trailing and still in the ball game. They're in the red zone in Houston territory, in the red zone, 13-17 to go in the fourth quarter. They have confusion with both Mark Sanchez and Tim Tebow on the field. First timeout. Next drive. It's now a 23-17 game, 8.31 left to go, more confusion, another timeout, and they were running at times Antonio Cromartie in the Wildcat, Joe McKnight at times in the Wildcat, and they're getting Tim Tebow in there, and all this confusion leads to two key timeouts, and you look at what happened to the Jets. Right before the two-minute warning, they have one timeout. Mark Sanchez tries to force a pass and gets intercepted off a tip, The Jets get the ball back with seconds left, seconds in the game. If they could have used those two timeouts, they would have got the ball back 
okay with no timeouts, but in a minute 20 to try and get a touchdown to win the game. It was just horrible clock management because of the confusion. The Jets were wasting time trying to figure things out on the offense, and this total confusion cost the Jets the game. And can you blame Tim Tebow himself? Well, probably not, but you have to look at the big picture. Tim Tebow does not have the skill set as a passer, I think, in this offense right now to get the ball moving. I don't think really they have really much of an offense in terms of structure at all. Yes, Mark Sanchez is playing terribly, but there's always some semblance, some choppiness in this Jets offense over the years under Rex Ryan. There doesn't seem to be much of a rhythm really ever. And yes, a part of that blame has to go to Mark Sanchez. A part of that has to do with Tim Tebow not having the traditional quarterback skill set. But it's just overall a mess between the Jets, Tim Tebow, Mark Sanchez, Tony Sperano, Rex Ryan, the offense. It's just a total mess. And the Jets, I think, uh, offensively, they're doomed in terms of their playoff hunt. They might still be in it because the AFC doesn't really have a, a clear second wildcard team at this point. Maybe even a first wildcard team at this point. So maybe the Jets uh, still have a chance. But at this point right now, uh, they are looking to be in big trouble. Fourth on the six-pack, the Kansas City Chiefs. And, well, the controversy about fans cheering Matt Castle's injury. And I'll side with Eric Winston on this. It was sickening to see the fans cheer an injury. You don't want to cross the line and cheer a player gets injured. Matt Castle, he's been loyal and dedicated to this team, to the city, to the franchise. And you can't disrespect them for that. And what happened when you cheer a guy getting injured, that's the ultimate sign of disrespect. Now, on that note, I understand the frustrations for the Kansas City Chiefs. Look at what's happened in KC this year. 19, 19 giveaways in five games, nearly four per game, a big reason why they're one and four. They had a chance to win that game against the Baltimore Ravens on Sunday, lost nine to six, and one of the key turnovers was when the Chiefs off a Baltimore fumble to start the second half, had the ball inside the two yard line, and Matt Castle fumbles the ball away. Instead of giving it to the turbo lover Jamal Charles, who leads the league in rushing yards this season, Castle coughs the ball up. It was one of thirteen turnovers he's had in five games this season but the Chiefs became just the third team since 1978 when there was first a 16 game season they're the third team since 1978 with a negative 15 turnover margin or worse in their first five games and you look at the first two teams as an example and this will lead up to my point the 1987 Buffalo Bills Began the year 2-3 and three with that negative 15 turnover margin. The end of the year, 7-8 and eight with a negative 12 turnover margin. Then the 1981 Washington Redskins began the year 0-5 with a negative 15 turnover margin. They ended the year 8-8 eight and eight with a negative 2 turnover margin. So the point here, although Matt Castle got injured and he won't play Sunday against the Buccaneers with what seems to be a concussion, the Kansas City Chiefs will be in better hands with Brady Quinn. And there's still hope for the Chiefs because you look at the impact as soon as that regression happens with that negative 15 turnover margin, 
it's not going to get that much worse for the Chiefs than what they had in the first five games. They're not going to end the year with a negative 48 turnover margin, which is what they're projecting to do at this point. It's going to help out their offensive passer rating, which is 30th in the league. It's going to help out their real quarterback rating, which is 32nd in the league. Then you look at the scoring impact of the short field and giving up opportunities due to those turnovers, their scoreability and bendability will get better, and they're 30th and 31st in those categories respectively. And really, in terms of their bendability, they probably should be dead last. But the Detroit Lions, who have allowed five return touchdowns in the last two games, are dead last. And then finally, the relativity index. Obviously, they're going to score better, With a better turnover margin, they're 29th in that. So this in itself, just the regression and the change to Brady Quinn at this time should help out the team. Honestly, it can't get much worse than Matt Castle this year in that Kansas City offense. Is it the style of offense that is hurting Matt Castle? Maybe. Is he just having a bad five games? Maybe. But at this point, the Chiefs, they have to try Brady Quinn. There's still a chance in that AFC West because there's really not one team that is asserting themselves. And if Denver wins in Monday night in San Diego, the team with the best record in the league will be at 500. So there's still a chance there for the Kansas City Chiefs. Number five on the list, five and six actually are both uh, coaching complaints. And we'll start off with Ron Rivera again costing the Carolina Panthers the ball game in the second week in a row. Now, obviously, at 1-4, and four, the Panthers can be playing better football as a team. But in Sunday's 16-12 to 12 loss at home against Seattle, a team that has played terribly on the road in recent seasons, once again, Ron Rivera made the wrong call with a team in position to either grab the lead or seal the game on a fourth down. Again, he cost the team. In the fourth quarter, it's a 16-10 game, and Carolina has a fourth and one, I believe, at the Seattle two-yard line. And instead of using your 6'5", 250-pound quarterback, Cam Newton, and run the ball with him and try and push for that first down, you try and pass with him. You try and pass with a guy who, in the game, went 12 of 29, passed for less than five yards per attempt, and had an offensive passer rating below 60. You try and pass against the Seattle defense, which has done a great job so far this season. You try and pass instead of giving your quarterback, who had 14 rushing touchdowns last year, and because of his rushing in this game against Seattle, was able to improve his real quarterback rating above 65 Despite, again, 12 of 29 passing and a sub-5 yards per attempt. And, oh yeah, being sacked four times for 33 yards. He was still able to put up a better quarterback rating because of his running. And you don't run with him when the game was on the line. Needless to say, Carolina threw an incomplete pass. Seattle ran the clock down to less than a minute, took a safety uh, on the free kick, got really good position, and in that one, 16 to 12. So Ron Rivera, after two weeks ago against Atlanta, punting the ball with a chance on a fourth and one to use Cam Newton to salt the game away in Atlanta. He calls the team 
the game again here with a bad coaching decision. And if you had a coach who understood his quarterback and his skill set properly, this Carolina team could be, at this point, 3-2 and two, and possibly right in the hunt in a stacked NFC. Instead, they're 1-4, and four, and pretty much their season is over as you know it. And finally, the last part of the six-pack, Andy Reid, deserving, in my opinion, more blame for the Eagles' offensive struggles than Michael Vick. Now, obviously, Michael Vick has been terrible, and he's a big reason why the team is 24th in offensive passer rating, 27th in real quarterback rating, dead last in scorability, and despite being 8th in yards per attempt rushing-wise, they're 12th in the offensive hog index. The reason why I blame Andy Reid more than Michael Vick is because Andy Reid isn't adjusting to Michael Vick being a bad quarterback at this point. Michael Vick's skill set is quite obvious. He's good at running the ball. He's good when he gets protection at throwing those intermediate to deep passes. But he's terrible at quick reads. He's terrible when he takes too much time and tries to roll out. And Andy Reid just isn't finding a way to make adjustments to it. Really, Michael Vick isn't even a good quarterback for the Andy Reid style of offense. Back in the day with Donovan McNabb, even though McNabb had his shortcomings, the Eagles could do certain things very well. They could screen the ball very well because, well, Donovan McNabb understood how to throw a screen pass, and Michael Vick clearly doesn't. So that really helped out the Eagles' offense. And the other thing was, when Donovan McNabb threw the ball poorly, he threw it in the ground. Well, people can complain about that all they want, but there's not going to be interceptions if the ball hits the ground. Michael Vick, when he's misfiring the ball, he's throwing interceptions. He's throwing it into coverage. He's throwing behind receivers. The ball gets tipped up and it gets intercepted. Andy Reid, as the head coach of that ball, that ball club, needs to make the adjustments. What does he do instead? Against the Pittsburgh Steelers in a 19-17 loss in Pittsburgh, he decides on a first and goal at the two early in the game to go with the quarterback draw. Now, this isn't Cam Newton, where he's big enough just to push in the middle of the line. And this isn't a down on first down, where there's really the expectation to have to pass the ball to try and get a touchdown. If it was third and goal at the two, maybe a third and goal at the four or five, then I can understand the quarterback draw, because there's not that expectation for the run. You can spread the field out, and you can get a delayed quarterback draw and get the touchdown instead it's a first and goal to two and well the Steelers they're probably expecting run they did although Michael Vick tried to protect the ball he didn't do it well he dove kind of on his side not going forward so he dove on his side and left his whole right side exposed to a hit from the outside and the Pittsburgh defensive back came from the outside, hit the ball cleanly. The Steelers recover the ball in the end zone for a touchback. Vic fumbles two more times in the ball game. The Eagles then take two timeouts on their final offensive drive, and the Steelers have the ball for the last six and a half minutes because the Eagles have only one timeout to use. Bad clock management by Andy Reid. Bad usage of Michael Vick yet again, and the Eagles, despite having a defense that at this point might be Super Bowl quality, they're only 3-2, and two, and they're in trouble because Andy Reid is not using Michael Vick in the proper way. So that 
is the final note of your six-pack of statements. Let's quickly fire through things here as we now look at the six-pack of players in Week 5 who really stood out. They were the six best players of Week 5, you can say. We'll start things off with, well, a duo. I guess it's not really six players per se, but we'll start things off with the duo, and that's Charles Peanut Tillman and Lance Briggs. Both of them, for the Bears, had a defensive touchdown in Chicago's 41-3 victory over the Jacksonville Jaguars. It's the first time in NFL history that a pair of teammates had defensive touchdowns in consecutive weeks. Remember, they both did it against the Dallas Cowboys. Why is this so big? Well, it's helping out the Chicago Bears, leading the way in terms of bendability, leading the way in terms of defensive pass rating, leading the way in terms of the defensive hog index. The Chicago Bears at this point have the best defense in the league, and it actually reminds me a lot of the 2002 Buccaneers who had a defensive pass rating below 50 and used that Tampa 2 and that playmaking ability to win a Super Bowl. Look out for the Chicago team. At the beginning of the year, I had Houston Texans over Chicago Bears in Super Bowl 47. And at this point, I'm liking those two teams in the Super Bowl, but maybe even the Bears might be a better team fit to win the Super Bowl than the Houston Texans. Second in the six-pack is the San Francisco Offensive Hogs. Again, we don't go with a singular player, but look at what the Offensive Hogs did. And the reason why I pick them over Alex Smith is just the balance of the San Francisco offense and a 45-3 win over the Buffalo Bills. The San Francisco 49ers became the first team in NFL history with over 300 rushing yards and 300 passing yards in a single game. Third on this list, Reggie Wayne. And you can't say enough about what he did in this Chuck Strong comeback for the Indianapolis Colts 30-27 over the Green Bay Packers. The Colts playing for their head coach Chuck Pagano, who this week was diagnosed with leukemia. And really, to be honest, in October personally, leukemia is a sensitive subject. My late cousin uh, would have celebrated his 29th birthday yesterday if he did not pass from leukemia. So really on a personal standpoint, I can understand the motivation for the Indianapolis Colts and Reggie Wayne, who's, well, he's known Chuck Pagano dating back to days at the University of Miami, had a huge game, had the game-winning touchdown for the Indianapolis Colts. I believe uh, you look at it, if you go fantasy-wise in a PPR league, he had over 40 points. So he was a guy at double-digit receptions over 100 yards in that game-winning touchdown. Reggie Wayne, the key factor in that comeback. Andrew Luck had Wayne to rely on passing the ball down the field in that ball game. Number four, Drew Brees. Goes without saying, set an NFL record 48 consecutive games with a passing touchdown. But he also had a fourth-quarter comeback to avoid an 0-5 start for the New Orleans Saints. The Saints get their first victory in Drew Brees, the main reason why he's played wonderful over the last two weeks and should continue to do a great job, obviously, because he's Drew Brees. Number five on the list, the New York Giants offensive hogs. You look at the games that Ahmad Bradshaw and even David Wilson had. 
around 250 yards rushing. Bradshaw over 200. And in two carries, Wilson had 40. Both of them had touchdowns. And the Giants destroying the Browns with their offense, 41-27. They did a great job of protecting Eli Manning. And the only interception was on an underthrow by Manning. It wasn't really the offensive line's fault. But Victor Cruz had a big game, three touchdown passes, and it was because Eli Manning really wasn't threatened by what's a good Cleveland Browns pass rush. And finally, well, we kind of go from where we started, and that's with the St. Louis Rams and their defensive hogs. Nine sacks of Kevin Cobb and the Arizona Cardinals. A big win on Thursday night football for the Rams, and the first time they're over 500 since the 2006 season when the Rams started the year 4-1 and and finished the year 8-8. Eight and eight. It's been a while for that Rams team where they had 15 wins combined from 2007 to 2011. That's an average of a 3-13 season. So for the Rams here, a big win. They're 3-2. and two. They're already equal to their average win total from the previous five seasons. And it's all thanks to those defensive hops. Now quickly to the six-pack, the top teams in the NFL through five weeks. The Houston Texans, they're number one on my list. They rank first in the quality stats power rankings. Number two on my list, the Atlanta Falcons. They're right behind Houston in the power rankings, and I think they're right behind the Houston Texans. Both of those teams are 5-0. and Number three on the list, I'm actually going to go with the Chicago Bears. I mentioned their defense and how it reminds me of that 2002 Buccaneers teams. The way that they're making these plays, getting the interceptions, they lead the league in takeaways, and they're getting big plays off those takeaways for defensive touchdowns in the last two games. They're ranked fourth in the power rankings from the quality stats but I will hop them over the San Francisco 49ers, who are fourth on my list. Yes, the 49ers have done a great job in the last two games, allowing just three points, and they've scored 79 points. But it's been against the Jets and Bills. I want to see what they do this Sunday against the New York Giants. Fifth on the list, the Baltimore Ravens, a team that's ranked sixth in the quality stats power rankings behind the Minnesota Vikings, but the Vikings have played quite an easy schedule at this point, so I give Baltimore the benefit of the doubt. The reason why they've dropped on my list compared to last week when they were third, well, is that the Baltimore Ravens have defeated the Browns and Chiefs in uninspiring fashion by a combined 10 points. Maybe, just maybe now, the Dallas Cowboys have a chance based on the way the Ravens have played over the last two weeks. And finally, number six on my list, quite a bit of a surprise given the way they played on Thursday, but the Arizona Cardinals. Yes, I think by season end they'll be last in the NFC West, but at this point, the five teams they've played so far, you have to respect what they've done. They've faced off against the Seattle Seahawks, a 3-2 and two team, the New England Patriots, a 3-2 and two team, the Philadelphia Eagles, a 3-2 and two team, a Miami Dolphins team that is actually playing better football than their 2-3 and three record. And finally, the St. Louis Rams, a 3-2 and two team. You look at it, a 3-1 and one record against quality opponents. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt for now, just from what the stats say through five weeks. So I put them on the last in my six-pack. And finally... 
we look at a six-pack of games for week six. And we'll start things off with the Dallas Cowboys at the Baltimore Ravens. This should be an interesting game. Again, Baltimore, uh, their sixth in the quality stats power rankings. And they've played a bit poorly over the last two games. Uh, but their passing game is working well with Joe Flacco. Their defense isn't as good as it's been in recent years. But still hanging in there. And uh, they should be really a tough challenge for the Dallas Cowboys who are an unimpressive 20th in the quality stats power rankings, but you know the Dallas Cowboys. It's always a drama. It's always interesting, and it should be, at the least, an interesting football game and must-see television. The second one on my list, the St. Louis Rams at the Miami Dolphins. The Rams ranked 12th in the quality stats power rankings, completely going under the radar with the experts I actually think you can make an argument for them being a top 10 team at this point. So the Rams on the road against Miami, who's now ranked 14th in the quality stats power rankings. Again, they look better than a 2-3 and three team. So that should be unexpectedly an interesting matchup, especially with those two defenses who have been doing a fantastic job. The Rams front seven against Miami's front seven. Cameron Wake against Chris Long should be a fantastic matchup. Third on my list, the San Francisco Giants hosting the New York, or San Francisco 49ers, excuse me, hosting the New York Giants. Probably thinking about wild card baseball at this point. But this should be a fantastic matchup, a rematch of last year's NFC Championship game. Revenge here, possibly, for the 49ers, and they might be able to put the Giants back at 500. The Giants are ranked 8th in the quality stats power rankings. The Giants, 3rd. Phenomenal game, goes without saying. 4th on my list, the New England Patriots at the Seattle Seahawks. This is going to be a tough challenge for Tom Brady and crew against that great front 7 of the Seahawks. Again, they're ranked 6th in the defensive hog index but New England cross-country in Seattle. CenturyLink will be absolutely loud, rumbling. Going to be very tough for the Patriots, a team that is 7th in the power rankings. Seattle is 15th, but I love this dynamic in Seattle with the Patriots, who, if they can't get the victory, will fall to 500. Number 5 on the list, the Green Bay Packers at the Houston Texans. It goes without saying, the Texans, they're my Super Bowl favorite, uh, they're really the, the, the favorite of the website right now to win Super Bowl 47. And so far, they've lived up to that number one in the quality rankings. Green Bay still ninth right now in the power rankings, according to the quality stats, despite a 2-3 and three record. They are statistically still playing, playing impressive football, even though I think they're one-dimensional and in serious trouble. But you love the matchup here. Aaron Rodgers going up against that great Houston pass defense. A defensive pass rating for the Texans of 55.7. At this point, it's second best in the league. But the question is, Brian Cushing out for the year with an ACL injury. Will they, like in past years, take a noticeable step back without Cushing for the rest of the season? And remember, Houston from 2010 to 2011, a huge step up in terms of a better defensive pass rating, more than 30 points in improvement. History shows there will be some regression and a return back for the Houston Texans. And this might be the way that 
just luck has it that the Texans start to decline defensively. And finally, we look at the Monday night football game, the Denver Broncos at the San Diego Chargers, and this might be the game that determines the AFC West. The Broncos, 2-3, and three, have losses against the Patriots, 7th in the rankings, and then the Atlanta Falcons and Houston Texans, 2nd and 1st respectively. They've lost to some very tough teams. They face off against the Chargers team that is 3-2, and two, but has beaten three weaklings. You look at them defeating the Oakland Raiders, 29th in the rankings, the Tennessee Titans dead last in the rankings, and the Kansas City Chiefs, 31st in the rankings. It looks like Denver should get the victory, though they're on the road and are one game behind the Chargers. If San Diego wins, though, it looks like they might have the favor. They might have the balance shift in their favor in the AFC West, but if Denver can get the win on the road in San Diego, and Peyton Manning has quite a history against those San Diego Chargers, this could be the Denver Broncos division, especially with one game left in Denver against the Chargers. That's all for this edition of the Stat Pack. Adam Durbovalski signing out for now. Enjoy your week six.